All right, our third and final segment. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, medicine and medically related things. Though I think I will close today's program with something that's only peripherally related. But uh, I'll, I'll see if I can't construct a bridge to it. We'll see. All right, we're huge fans of New Scientist magazine. The writing is good. The topics are interesting. The current edition, September 28th, is exceptional. Although the cover story, Why Space Has Exactly Three Dimensions, does leave me a bit cold. We take the position here in Radio Parallax that three dimensions is plenty. Although we do note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. I do want to note in starting that at my medical school reunion, week before last, I had a chance to talk to uh, one of my colleagues who has gone on to become a psychiatrist. He is currently working in our prison system and had some rather hair-raising stories, which I am not going to relate. I do feel I should note that although we've taken our pot shots here at the psychiatric profession, and are about to do that once again, I do sympathize with people that have to grapple with a most extraordinarily difficult problem, mental illness. That said, let's talk about the piece in New Scientist titled The Woman Who Had 48 Personalities by Rosie Waterhouse. The subheadline is, for a couple of decades, multiple personality disorder was the diagnosis du jour. Big mistake. Let me quote extensively from this piece, because I think it's worth doing. Starts out by noting that the height of her illness, Carol, had dozens of different personalities. A couple of them were children. One was an older female called Louise who'd recovered disturbing memories when younger. She'd been sexually abused by her parents and forced to make child pornography. There was a more aggressive persona who acted as Carol's protector. Peace notes that while Carol's case sounds like an extreme example of multiple personality disorder, MPD, the reality, as Carol eventually discovered, is even stranger, noting that none of these details are true. Not the pornography, not the sexual abuse, and not the different personalities. They had all been summoned into existence by Carol's psychiatrist. Said Carol, this doctor was very charismatic and manipulative. Noted author Waterhouse, if Carol's case were isolated, it might be put down to a vulnerable patient encountering a misguided doctor. Yet, Carol is not alone. Skeptics about MPD, including myself, say that many, perhaps the vast majority of such diagnoses are fantasy, arising from risky techniques that can plant ideas in people's heads. Waterhouse goes on. As an investigative journalist who's written on this subject for many years, I'm now doing a PhD on MPD and related controversies. And it is emerging that some UK therapists seem unaware of MPD's fall from grace across the Atlantic, which I guess we need to explain. Noted the author, if one thing is responsible for doctors and the public's enthusiasm for MPD, it is Sybil, a book published in 1973. Billed as the true story of a woman with 16 personalities, Sybil was later made into a highly watchable film starring Sally Field. The movie was by some estimates seen by a fifth of the U.S. population. Sybil spread the idea that childhood abuse could trigger the development of multiple personalities. She notes later, The number of reported cases of MPD began to grow. In 1980, the diagnosis entered the most important textbook for U.S. psychiatrists, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. It was classified as an extreme form of a more common and less controversial symptom, disassociation. 
Between 1980 and 1998, there were 40,000 reported cases of MPD in the U.S. alone. That compares with fewer than 200 cases ever reported worldwide before Sybil appeared. And over time, the nature of MPD became more and more bizarre. The number of personalities harbored by each patient grew from an average of two per person, hovering for a while at 16, which was Sybil's tally, then swelling to 100 or more. These could include personalities of the opposite sex or animals. In one case, a lobster. Noted Rosie Waterhouse, right from the beginning, there were doubts raised about the validity of MPD. Especially when they get into issues of recovered memory. Notes the piece. Skeptics say that far from being recovered, these memories are false, created by ill-advised therapy techniques. These include asking leading questions and encouraging clients to imagine specific events happening, often while hypnotized or taking barbiturate drugs. Noted that one of the strongest planks of evidence against the validity of recovered memories is work led by Elizabeth Loftus, a psychologist at the University of California, Irvine. Her team has shown that those techniques can create false, childhood memories, which is now a far cry from what I was taught when I was a student at UCI, which was that children don't make things up. We talked on this show years ago about the famous McMartin school molestation case. Well, hold on. So does the article. We'll return to that. Loftus famously got people to believe that they had met Bugs Bunny at Disneyland, which is impossible since Bugs is a Warner Brothers character, not a Disney one. They go on to explain how an idea can be, can be planted and then it can be nurtured to grow. They said, especially if the person asking is a trusted therapist who convinces you that your troubles all have the hallmarks of childhood abuse. MPD skeptics say the different personalities are a fiction created during therapy. Noted the piece, the recovered memory movement took a stranger turn in the 1980s when some therapists started reporting their clients had been victims of organized cults carrying out satanic worship, baby sacrifice, and cannibalism. What followed were campaigns, almost literally witch hunts, against parents or child care providers accused of satanic child abuse in the U.S., U.K., and other countries. Peace quotes a skeptic saying that if you believe in the validity of recovered memory techniques, then you should believe in alien abductions. It's the same techniques used. And the piece details how the case of Carol, she began therapy after suffering from stress as a single mother studying at a university while holding down two jobs. She mentioned to her college psychologist that when under pressure, she would switch to autopilot to keep going. The therapist took this as a symptom of disassociation and urged her to see a colleague who specialized in MPD. And indeed, the psychiatrist diagnosed Carol with MPD at her first session. And so began years of therapy, which led Carol to accepting some fantastic notions, all endorsed by her doctor, that not only had she been abused by her parents, but also they were part of a satanic cult and that she had been abducted by aliens. Noting that when her mental health didn't improve and she became estranged from her parents, the, the supposed satanic cult worshipers, and suffered nightmares, she complained that she was getting worse. Therapist told her that in MPD therapy, you always get worse before you get better. And here's the part where we really enter the twilight zone. I'm just going to quote from the article. After several years, Carol told her therapist, I don't want to continue MPD therapy. It was thanks to an episode of Sesame Street that Carol realized that what she'd been previously taken to be manifestations of her different personalities were 
in fact, just different moods. Recalls Carol, that day the topic presented by Grover and Kermit, sorry, I just have to pause for a moment, Sesame Street takes on the psychiatric profession. The puppets would describe a feeling and then explain to viewers how they felt and how a feeling made them look. It was a light bulb moment, Carol realized, that a person could have a different feeling without changing to a different personality. Well, yeah. My dear listener, you are aware of this, aren't you? You can have a different mood without having a totally different personality. Anyway, the piece goes on to describe how MPD has now been on the decline, a rather sharp decline since a lot of people are suing on account of what's being described as a misdiagnosis. They mentioned one case in Chicago where a a lawsuit was successful for almost $11 million, noted that the risk of legal liability effectively shut down most hospital MPD clinics. They note in 2006, 83 psychologists and memory researchers put their name to an amicus brief testifying against the idea of MPD. Said one of the authors, we all agreed that the entire notion of repressed memories and MPD are pernicious myths. This dovetailed with some questions about uh, the original Sybil book. Uh, A book came out titled Sybil Exposed, revealing that the patient concerned was a disturbed individual who was exploited by a therapist and journalist who were both in pursuit of publicity. Anyway, we would like to suggest that you read the entire article for yourself. And if you've been diagnosed as having MPD, I'd start asking some really pointed questions. Mr. Milling suggests you do that with your, your smarter personalities. All right, final item of the day, which is not really medical, but I'll consider it such by the following logic. As mentioned at great length on last week's program, I enjoyed enormously the nostalgia and fun involved with getting together with people I attended medical school with 30 years ago. And one thing we vowed was to stay in better contact. To facilitate that, a website is probably going to be constructed so that we can all chat with one another. This, of course, raises a potential danger. Some people who trend to the more taciturn may not feel like volunteering a great deal of information all the time, whereas others, afflicted with diarrhea of the mouth, might be tempted to go on and on. This exact situation was faced by a James Nelson some years ago, and his article about it, which I think was in Smithsonian, we need to quote from. Said Mr. Nelson, I didn't want to kill Dave Henderson. Though I didn't know him well, I had grown surprisingly fond of him. For six years, I excerpted many of his newsy and colorful letters for inclusion in the class notes column for what appears in each issue of the Yale Alumni Magazine. I had, in fact, taken a certain vicarious pleasure in his opulent and sometimes slippery escapades. The powers that be, however, did not share my feelings. Henderson was becoming an embarrassment to his and my university. In describing some notes that came in from Dave Henderson for the Yale Alumni Magazine, author Nelson noted that, um, as everyone knows, alumni magazines uh, include a section called Class Notes. These are very popular. He states that no matter how relevant or flashy the editors try to make their lead articles, the first thing alumni invariably turn to, if they turn to anything at all, is the back of the book, where the class notes are buried. 
Now, Nelson was the editor of this section of the Yale Alumni Magazine, and he notes that if your class notes are anything like mine, in the class of 850, there are 25 active, extroverted, well-placed members whose names seem to appear in the column in boldface in each and every issue. There are also 825 normal folk, drudges and geniuses alike, whose names since graduating have appeared once, or more likely, not at all. Nelson notes it wasn't for lack of trying to get those other 825 in. He would send letters out encouraging them to contribute. Somewhere along the way, Dave Henderson appeared. His first notice in the class notes section was, writing from his winter home in Cancun, Dave Henderson reports that his company finally lost its long bout with Chapter 11. Says Dave philosophically, I didn't really mind. I was sick and tired of trying to breathe life into the damn thing. Dave said he has several pleasant conversations with two other class members he met at the Betty Ford Institute last fall. And as time went on in subsequent issues, Dave Henderson's name kept appearing. In the November 1984 class notes section, there was the following. Dave Henderson writes, Back in Cancun earlier than expected. Thanks, no thanks to Marge and self having been put under boat arrest for 10 days in São João de Monte, a tiny port town north of Recife, Brazil, for suspected trafficking in illegal substances. The whole thing was poppycock, of course, and ended only after we gave a lavish party on the boat for the entire police department, their wives, girlfriends, and God knows who else. The incident shook us up nevertheless, and we flew home, leaving the crew to take our boat back to Cartagena. Noted author Nelson, Dave's messages kept coming. It was as though, having finally pulled the stopper from the bottle, he couldn't keep the contents from gushing forth. Writing in April of 1985, Dave Henderson sends several color photos of his fabulous Cancun home together with the following note. Marge and I plan to have the whole family here from Easter, provided the court will modify the terms of our daughter Sandra's parole to permit her a brief trip outside of the U.S., Incidentally, watch for Sandra's book, Triple Cross, which will come out in September. I believe it will cause quite a stir in the intelligence-gathering community. And of course, despite these colorful uh, contributions from Dave Henderson, only one of his fellow alumni wrote the uh, class notes editor to ask, how come I can't find this guy in the, the listing of alumni? And perhaps not coincidentally, Dave's contributions got even more colorful. In December of 1986, Dave Henderson writes, Marge and I are heartsick that in July, pirates boarded our motor yacht Triunfador 2 as it was passing through Malacca Straits. They stripped it clean and opened the sea valve, sending the most comfortable cruiser we ever owned to the bottom of the ocean. Fortunately, Marge and I disembarked in Dar es Salaam and had flown back to Joburg to check on some of our investments. We're now battling with our Panamanian insurance company about the sinking. They claim it was an act of God. Noted author Nelson, if the readership of the alumni magazine had been limited to Yale alumni, Henderson's little notes to his classmates clearly would have caused no stir. When one of his letters was reprinted in the San Francisco Chronicle, the pot began to boil. And yes, I do remember this. The letter appeared in the daily column of the Chronicle's venerated Herb Kane. Kane opened with the words, Dave Henderson has it made, after which it quoted a letter from Dave word for word as it appeared in the alumni magazine. Dave Henderson sends pictures of the launching of his new boat, Triunfador 3. Says Dave, our shiny new putt-putt was to have been 163 feet overall, but after Marge's father kicked the bucket last year, we figured we could go another 30, 40 feet. So we redid the whole plan, and now it's 197 feet stem to stern. 
Herb Kane closed with the comment, hold the bula bula soup. Soon afterwards, a concerned Yale graduate wrote Yale President Benno Schmidt and enclosed a copy of Herb Kane's column. The letter commented first on the poor taste exhibited by the Hendersons in lengthening the Triumphador III by 34 feet as a direct result of the death of Marge's father, and second on Dave's even poorer taste in writing about it. Implicit was a third comment. On the notes secretary's poor taste for having included the item and on the alumni magazine for having printed it. Soon the New Yorker got involved and Dave Henderson became a national figure. Mr. Nelson was soon called before the powers that be at Yale Alumni Magazine. And while he offered to come up with an obituary for Dave Henderson, the editor in turn lectured him at some length on the innumerable reasons why he himself would rather die than run such a piece. I would note in closing that if we do get such a website set up for my cohorts, I hope we find ourselves a Dave Henderson, whose obituary... By the way, I finally did see the light in Smithsonian Magazine and was as follows. Dave Henderson's wife, Marge, writes, We were about to take Triunfador 3 through the canal, and with all the unrest in Panama, Dave thought it would be a wise precaution to arm the crew with assault rifles. He had gone ashore in Belize to try and buy some, but as he was walking back to the boat empty-handed, he was struck down by a speeding pickup truck loaded with mangoes. He died on the way to the hospital. Just want to say, James Nelson, you rock. We are out of time. Our thanks to our good pal, Mr. Will Durst, and to the archive section at Insight over at Capital Public Radio. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.